Let's pray together, and then we'll take a close look at Romans 7. Our God and Father, we call upon you this morning, for there is no other God. You alone are able to rescue us and save us. Your power is displayed all around us. You are the God who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. You, the uncreated one, spoke this universe into existence, and you did it out of nothing. It boggles our minds. It defies our full understanding and comprehension, but we thank you that you have given us the capacity to comprehend something of it, and by faith we do. So we praise you, maker of heaven and earth. We ask that you would have mercy on us this morning. Our sins are many, and they are great, and some of them are so deeply embedded that we wonder if we will ever gain victory over them. But let your gospel rule in our hearts and begin to change our thinking and as a consequence, change the way we live. With the psalmist, we pray in all sincerity, do not remember against us our former iniquities, but let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are are brought very low by our sins and our failures. Help us, O God of our salvation. Do it for the glory of your name. Deliver us, and we praise you that through Jesus Christ you have made atonement for our sins fully and freely. And you have not asked us to make up even a small percentage of that atonement, but it is all, in, all finished in Jesus Christ. So why should the nations say, where is your God? We sometimes feel like you are distant, that you are not hearing or answering our prayers. But we ask that even while we wait patiently, for you to grant the answers to our prayers, uh, that you would sustain us and strengthen us and give us today a, a sight of your goodness and your glory that we may be able to trust you fully even while we wait patiently. For many of us, it seems that you have been silent and distant for a long time. And we know that you are, are not indifferent to our needs. Um, but the reality is we feel like we pray and nothing happens. We look to you, and there seems to be no movement. Oh God, come and rescue your people, lest the nations would mock your word and your testimony and remain in their unbelief. So again, we say, as the people of God have said for thousands of years, restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine upon us that we may be saved. We think of those in our congregation who, who, bear really difficult physical afflictions at this time and ask that you would give them strength on this day and bring healing. Some are in need of miraculous healing. Some are in need of physical empowerment that is beyond medication or therapy or, or some type of surgical procedure. We look to you, the great God who heals all, and ask that you would show mercy. And then we think of those, Lord, whose hearts are grieving and sorrowful and pray on this day that you would give them comfort. We pray for Becca and Randy Davis and their family. And though we rejoice that her mother is with you and sees the glory of the Christ that she has loved and served through many years, the family sorrows her loss. Death separates us and we hate what it does. But let this be a week of divine comfort and overflowing joy as that family gathers and sets their hearts upon you. We ask for Terry and Lynn White 
that you would comfort their family and the loss of his cousin and such a tragic uh, death, Lord. And we ask that you would show your mercy and compassion and bring comfort to that family through this time of sorrow as well. Death enters our world. We know from Romans that it's the result of our own sin, but we still despise it and pray for comfort and protection and peace. And we thank you that ultimately you have defeated our foe, death, and that through Jesus Christ there is every reason to be confident and hopeful knowing that death does not have the final word for your people. So give us grace on this day as we are in need of it. And I ask that as we open the word together, your spirit would instruct us, convicting us of sin, assuring us of its truth, growing our faith, and leading us in paths of righteousness for your namesake. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles, please, to Romans 7. And we covered the first six verses last week. And by, while you're turning there, by way of summary, uh, in the larger section, Paul has been making the case, you're no longer slaves to sin, you're now servants of the living God. No longer slaves to unrighteousness, but now you serve righteousness. And last week, we took a little extra time just to, to park it in, in those first few verses where the Lord uses the analogy of death that dissolves a marriage covenant and in the same way that a wife whose husband's, husband dies would be free to marry another, so Paul says we have actually died to sin and it's with the view that we would be brought into a new relationship, that we would actually belong to another. That was the term he said. And what a privilege it is to belong to Christ. Now coming out of that into verse 7, Paul asks a question similar to what he, he began chapter 6 with. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Another question for us to wrestle with. Paul puts it forward. Did that which is good then bring death to me? That is the law. If the law is good, is that what actually brought death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. 
Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God, but with my mind. So I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. I got to tell you that if you start pulling commentaries off a shelf or you look online for uh, scholarly works or even just sermons or devotionals or whatever, you will find a vast uh, array of opinions as to what Paul is talking about and specifically who he has in mind. Now, I know he writes it in first person, but some say, is this Paul present day as an apostle, just being really honest about the wrestlings he has with his own sinfulness and the weakness of his flesh? Is this Paul going all the way back to his pre-conversion days, where as a really committed Jew, he was a Pharisee who was devoted to the law, delighting in the law in a certain sense, but wholly incapable of keeping it? Uh, Or is this just an unconverted person in general that Paul is referring to? And you know what's really challenging when you dig in on something like this? I have some of my favorite commentators and scholars and, 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 and pastors that I go to, and they're, they're all three of those opinion and about four more as well. It gets a little complicated and confusing. But I'm hopeful that today we can walk through this passage in a really simple way where you, regardless of where you are in your relationship with the Lord right now, would come to this one firm conclusion and that is that Jesus Christ is your only hope of deliverance from sin. And that's good for a Pharisee like Paul once was. It's good for an apostle as Paul was when he wrote this passage. It's good for those who've never even considered Christianity before. It's good for those who've been in the faith for a long time because every one of us is facing sin and temptation daily. So take heart. Uh, I'm not gonna bore you or even complicate this with all kinds of interpretative theories and, and flows of argument. We're gonna try to stick with what is really clear in the text. And the first point is simply this, and I wanna, I wanna put this heading in place at the outset. With Paul, we say, we know the law. There are certain things we know, and Paul's gonna walk through those, and then he's gonna come to that one key place where he says, but I don't understand this. So let's start with what we know. Well, in the text, going back to chapter or 7, verse 1, we know the law is binding on certain people. And, and we covered all of that last week, but our death in Christ releases us from the binding power of the law, so I won't re-preach that. But then Paul comes to this point that he begins to make uh, through that question in verse 7, is the law sin? And he's actually going to walk us to this place of answering that with a definitive, no, the law is not sin. He's actually going to say the law is holy. We know the law is holy. Now, why would we say that? Well, he actually says it's holy and righteous and good. That word holy has the reference to it is morally pure. When you 
take whether it be the, the Ten Commandments in a real, really narrow sense or God's law as we sometimes even refer to all of his word, you can be assured that there is a purity to this because it flows out of the very nature and character of God. That doesn't mean we understand all that is in this book, but there is a purity about it or a holiness because God himself is absolutely separate from all sin specifically, but he's even holy in the sense that he's high uh, above all else in his creation. Well, the law is holy. The second word that Paul uses to describe it is that it is righteous. That is, the law of God will put a legal standard in place that if that standard is examined, uh, there would be no fault found in it. We would say that's right. Not partially right, mostly right, 99.9% right. No, it's 100% right. It's, it's true. It's legally or ethically right. You could even think in terms of the word justice. That's all in the news today. And, and God is a God of justice. He actually is very serious about it. Well, his law is just. It is righteous. Look at the, the second half of verse 7. Paul says, I would not have known sin, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now that's fairly remarkable because in another New Testament book, Paul talks about his pre-conversion life as a Pharisee and says in reference to the, the Mosaic law, I was blameless. What changed? Did he suddenly fall into sin that he'd never been guilty of before? No, the weight of this righteous law came to rest upon his life where suddenly the way he thought of himself was not how God thought of Paul. And in the the particular example he gives is of covetousness. I'd like to know the specifics of that covetousness. When you think about covetousness, though, that's one of the Ten Commandments uh, that that God gave to Moses at Mount Sinai, but it's, it's... in a sense, really the only one that you may not be able to perceive it as you look at the exterior facade of a person's life. Covetousness will work itself out in attitudes or actions, but it really is more of an attitude of the heart. I don't know the specifics of how Paul was suddenly convicted that he was a covetous man. Maybe he was envious of other people who were suddenly powerful or highly regarded That's one of the temptations in the field of academia and religion that he was a part of as as one trained in Pharisaism at the feet of Gamaliel. I mean, in a sense, he went to the, the top school and had the top teacher that was available in Israel at that particular time. Maybe it was an envy that grew in his heart because he some he saw somebody else excelling beyond him. One pastor whose messages I've really profited from, Sinclair Ferguson has a really interesting theory that when Paul was witness to the martyrdom of Stephen, there was actually covetousness in his heart because prior to the martyrdom, Stephen made such a powerful case for Christ and the gospel that no one could answer him. Well, we don't know the details, but look at what Paul actually says here in this particular verse. I would not have known covetousness had it not been for the law. And he's gonna go on to say the, the law or, or sin actually produced all kinds of covetousness in me. So when Paul measured his life according to God's law, he realized he wasn't right, but the law was right. The third word is good, and that just means it is virtuous. 
One author writes, in respect to operation or its influence on others, you, you can rely on it. it. It's always gonna point you in the direction you should go. It's good, it's virtuous. And God gave the law that we might know the way of love. As a matter of fact, in chapter 13 of Romans, Paul's, Paul's gonna write in chapter 10 that, the, that love is the fulfilling of the law. So the law is holy. Then look at verse 14 because Paul says the law is spiritual. And I think this stands in contrast to Paul saying, I am of the flesh, and we'll get to that in just a few minutes. But here one author writes, it seems best to connect this truth, the law is spiritual, with the Holy Spirit rather than the human spirit and to understand the expression to refer to the law's divine origin and character. So God's law is holy, it's a reflection of his character. It is spiritual because, again, it flows out of him. Specifically, we might say the Holy Spirit. So those are some of the things that we know about the law and can be sure of. Number two, we also know sin. We know sin uh, in part because of our experience with it. And I think as you begin to dig into the text and see some of the things that Paul says, how can you not but say, I'm right there with him. Yeah, I, I know what he's talking about. Look at verse eight. Sin actually produces all kinds of sin in us. Paul writes, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Does that strike you as odd? It does me in one sense. Uh, but let me illustrate it this way. For those of you who grew up playing sports, there's a certain joy in the game that everybody knows you have to play within the rules for the game to move forward and for it to actually be fun, but, the, but you don't want the rules to become the thing. And I remember, after, this is after I graduated from college and Kristen and I were newly married, actually. I don't think we had any kids at this particular point, but I joined a recreational basketball league and um, you know, most of the time it was really great fun. And it's a rec league too, right? Just, let's remember that. Well. You know, there are always those guys who take athletics way too seriously, and it doesn't matter if it's pickup or a rec league like this or whatever, but it's like the championship of the world every night. And you're, you kind of learn to adjust to those guys, but what we weren't prepared for on one particular night was a referee who blew his whistle at every perceived foul. And it reached a point where both teams were actually like saying stuff to him, and, and there was this weird camaraderie that formed between the teams, against the referee. <laughs> and if you read any kind of rule book or description, we all know that a foul has reference to an illegal personal contact or unsportsmanlike contact or something outside the boundaries, but this guy was calling any contact. And those of you who know basketball and love it recognize there has to be some contact. I mean, we're not talking about cheating contact but at the end of the day, it was ridiculous. And, and in that league, nobody kept track of fouls, so you couldn't really foul out. Um, but you, you could not even make one run down the floor, whistle was blowing. Tweet. And we're like, seriously? Let us play. Let us play. I think some of what Paul has in mind here would, would be similar, that sin seized the opportunity the law presented, in a sense, to start blowing the whistle on all kinds of things, not as your referee, uh, but, and that's where, my, that's where my illustration breaks down a little bit, but actually to lead you into it and to reveal it to you, to show you more and more of how 
you're, you're not as righteous as you might think you were. That term seizing an opportunity is actually a military term that has reference to sin actually setting up a base of operation. And it does it with the law. A law that's actually intended by God to lead you to the place of love for him and love for others. But sin keeps twisting that and distorting that and creating uh, a, a battleground within your heart. And then look at the word produced in me. Paul is saying that sin actually puts something into effect. It, it goes to work, does a job on you and me by the law. And so sin gets to work through the law, producing all kinds of sin. And in Paul's case, it was all kinds of covetousness. Sin produces all kinds of sin. Here's a second thought. Look at verse 10. Sin deceives us. Perhaps Paul is, is thinking all the way back to Genesis 3, where in the very first temptation, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. What a deceptive statement that was. Or perhaps, as another author writes, Paul has in mind the tendency among some Jews to accord, that is to give to the Mosaic law, life-giving power. What Paul says in these verses confronts such notions head on. The law has not restrained but stimulated evil desire. The law has not led to life but to death. Could be that some of you here today actually think that if if you can master this law-keeping thing, you'll find your way to God. You'll find your way to a righteousness that is acceptable in His sight. It's not just Jews who historically have had that perspective on the law that this is the pathway to eternal life. There are many religious groups, and there's one in this valley, isn't there, that places a premium on obedience as a means of salvation. Is that you? If you're really honest this morning, as Paul actually had to become at one point as a, as a Jewish Pharisee to recognize I'm not a law keeper. I don't do it perfectly. I'll never be good enough. You see, that law goes to work producing sin in us and sin also goes to work to deceive us. Sin would love for you to just stay right where you are and be content. Well, I'm not as bad as my neighbor. I got family family members who are really corrupt. Sin would love to deceive you in the same way the serpent deceived Eve and Adam to say, you won't actually die. Number three, sin produces death in us through the law. Look at verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Again, was it the law that brought death? By no means, it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Now, I think there's a different kind of death here than physical death that's in view. So let's talk about this. We, we know that the wages of sin is death. We've already covered that. But there's something else going on here that actually, I would say, allows the, the light of the gospel to begin to break in this. And you actually see a couple of lines there at the very end there, intriguing, aren't they? The, that, that sin might be recognized as, as being way beyond any measure we would put on it before. What's really happening here? I think what ha- is happening here is the Lord actually turning all of this work that sin is seeking to do in us for good. But it's not until we see sin as it really is and come to that place in life where we say, you know, I'm far worse than I would ever want to admit that we're prepared 
for the light of the gospel, for the rescue of Christ. It's actually God's kindness to show us the sinfulness of sin. And when God begins to show us the sinfulness of sin, that actually results in a kind of death. It's the death of self. It's the death of my righteousness. It's the death of my reputation that I work so desperately to uphold. It's the death of my religious strategies for impressing God and earning eternal life and making my way to heaven. It is God's kindness to show us the sinfulness of sin. Think about it in the context of parenting. Is a parent doing a child a favor if they continually shield them from the reality and the responsibility of their sin? You know, if every time a teacher calls or emails to say, we have a problem, it, the parent who blindly defends the child, the child will grow up to believe that she can do no, do no wrong. If every time a child experiences a disappointment or failure, we run, to the, we run to clean up the mess or to excuse the failure or to blame a coach or a teammate or a neighbor, the child will go on to believe that the problems they face are not of their own making. And so, to put it in this context, the coming of the law in, in the sense that Paul is writing of it here will ultimately kill off that cheerful assumption of innocence as one author writes. And that's not a bad thing unless that is the stopping point, unless you kind of like run the, the, the car of your soul into a cul-de-sac where it's just like, I am the world's worst. Well, well, nobody wants to be left there, but God doesn't want to leave you there either. No, but what a gracious and loving and truthful work it is when a parent or God in the context of Romans 7 allows a person to see the true inner heart. Parents don't miss those gospel opportunities. I know they're inconvenient. It is the hardest work in life and especially when you're in those battles with repetitive sin and you're like, we have told that child seven times in the last three minutes. I'm gonna kill him. No, let the law do that. Don't, don't kill your child. We need you out of jail to continue the discipleship process. But when you, by faith, continue to say to your child, you got a heart problem. There's something going on in your heart, and you know what? Mommy can't save you. Daddy can't save you. Jesus can save you. Don't you want Jesus to give you a new heart? And every parent here has had a child go, no! <laughs> or words to that effect. But you know, there are a lot of adults who aren't willing to face the reality of their sin. Are you making excuses right now like a little child would? Blaming your environment, your upbringing, the stress of life, whatever it is? Listen, if God in his kindness is letting you see the sinfulness of your sin, it's with a view of rescuing you. What a kind parent he is, if I can put it that way. And you know, it's a wonderful thing when a child dies under the weight of discipline and it is a glorious thing, an eternally glorious thing when human beings of all ages and positions in life die under the weight of their sin and turn to Christ. Has there ever been a time in your life when you actually saw your sin in all of its sinfulness and said, oh, I am the world's worst? Do you know your sin? If you do, there is a deliverer, a powerful deliverer. We know the law, we know our sin. There's a third category that we know some things about, we know our flesh. Look at verse 14. Paul says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, 
sold under sin. Now notice Paul said of the flesh, not in the flesh, as he has described life before conversion back in chapter 7, verse 5, and then when we get into chapter 8, in the coming weeks we'll see a, a similar phrase. So this is one of the reasons that I don't think that Paul is talking about unconverted people ultimately. I think he's actually talking about the real life wrestling that followers of Jesus experience with their own sin. But here Paul is using this little phrase of the flesh to describe this present life with all of its weakness. And and one of the hardest parts of this present life is that there's still a a residual principle of sin. That's what John Owen and other Puritans used to refer to it as, an indwelling principle of sin. One pastor writes, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, quoting from Paul here, and then says, even as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he possessed a remnant of the sinfulness that characterizes all human beings. And then he says, I'm sold under sin. I think that's probably something akin to David's confession in Psalm 51, verse 5, where, and if you're reading the New International Version, they really help give this nuance where he says, surely I have been a sinner from birth. Now, David wrote that as a redeemed man. He's in the process of confessing his sin and experiencing the powerful forgiveness that that God freely gives to those who confess their sin. Paul is recognizing that. Other passages, I think of Isaiah 6, who he is, he is, without a doubt, one of the greatest Old Testament prophets and used by God in, in his prophetic ministry and in his writing ministry, still having impact on, on the Lord's kingdom today. But when he came into the presence of God and saw him in his glory, what did his response include? I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. And you know, we have no reason to think that at that point he had somehow apostatized as a prophet of God or was living in deep sin at that particular point. No, just in comparison to the holy God and that holy standard of his law, he looks at his life, he's like, I'm in trouble. I think that's what Paul is saying here. Do you feel that as, as I do? You long to be holy and righteous just, just for like 10 minutes in a row. I, that would be a good day. Then Paul goes on to say, I know that Nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. So he does put a little qualifier on there. No good thing dwells in just me, all by myself. That's kind of what Paul is saying. It doesn't mean that Paul is as wicked or sinful as he might be, or that you are as wicked or sinful as as you might be, but if, if you do an assessment, an audit of the internal resources that you're bringing into this Christian life that you're seeking to live, you're not bringing any assets to the table that impress God or that he is in need of. And then he says in verse 25, with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. So those are a few of the things that we know about the flesh. So we know the law, God's law is holy and righteous and good. We know our sin Sadly, by our experience, I mean, who here can say, I have no sin, and then we know our flesh, and oh, how frustrating that is. But then, let's go back to verse 15, because in the middle of of this little section on on the flesh, Paul actually says something here, but here's what I don't understand. My own actions. And then he goes into, it's almost like doublespeak. It's not really at all, but, but he says, let me put these in two categories for you. There are sins of omission, like, I should do that stuff, but I don't. And then there's sins of commission. I shouldn't do that stuff, but I do. 
And, and he basically repeats the same lines two different times in verses 15 and 19. I do not do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. I do not do the good I want. Then verse 19, the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And you sense the frustration in Paul, don't you? Paul is saying, my actions confuse me. I, I just don't get it. And this is not unique to apostles. This is the experience of believers, ordinary people like you and me. They're confusing and they're frustrating. Now, notice what he says. It, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now, what is this? I mean, is this for real? You know, when our son Seth was a little boy, he had multiple imaginary friends. <laughs> Eric was the most familiar of the imaginary friends. And interestingly, Eric was frequently responsible for things that went awry in our house. <laughs> Eric was a very, very bad influence on Seth and a deep frustration to the rest of us. And on more than one occasion, Seth insisted that he should not be blamed or held responsible for certain wrongs, but it was, in fact, Eric. Is Eric the one that Luke eventually kicked to the moon, like got rid of this boy? There, there's, I, I wish my kids were here to tell the story because I think Luke in exasperation had had all he could take of the imaginary friends and there were a couple of little funny things like that. There was also a, like a, a, a former sibling that we had uh, that was like sucked up, sucked up in a vacuum cleaner at one point and we never saw him again. <laughs> Isn't that, am I making that up? <laughs> Our kids should be here to straighten this out. But nonetheless, it took us a while to sort this thing out with Seth, but you know, eventually we got him over the, you know, it's Eric's fault, it's Eric's fault. Well, is Paul pulling a similar thing right here, basically going, it's not my fault, it's sin in me. No, it's not the same. But this actually becomes a powerful part of our sanctification to understand the reality uh, of the state we are currently in. So Paul would never say, oh, it's just sin, it's sin dwelling in you, it's no big deal, just move on with your life. No, there are many other places where he says, you put to death what is earthly in you. You confess your sins when you are guilty of those sins so that you might experience the forgiveness of God. Yet at the same time, I think he's reaching back to chapters five and six where he has told us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the domain of sin, that tyrannical rule of sin actually has been broken and overthrown and we are no longer under the power of sin but there's still a little residual of it in us so we're not surprised by it but we're not wholly defeated by it either and there's some of you today who feel absolutely defeated in your sin and feel like sin is the last word it is the ruling power of my heart and God would come to you through this particular text and say no 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 take heart there's a different you that came out of the tomb with Jesus Christ. The old you died. The rule of sin has been broken. And yes, you are struggling today. Yes, you, like Paul, do stuff that you say, I don't want to do that. And you neglect to do the stuff that you know his law of love commands and, and impresses on your heart. And you feel almost a spiritual schizophrenia. But this is a reminder that God himself is saving you, has you, recognizes that the, the presence of sin has not been eliminated from you but you will be okay so it's not denial it's actually the affirmation of the eternal unchangeable irrevocable identity every believer now enjoys in union with Jesus 
I'm so thankful for this. And we sometimes confuse deliverance from the power of sin with the ongoing war with the presence of sin and think that maybe we're not even saved, maybe this gospel thing isn't real, and the Lord is coming in kindness saying, oh, it is real. So he's never excusing our sin, but there is, there is an aspect of this where, where you can rightly say on the authority of this passage, that's not the real me. Lord, I, I need to confess this sin to you, and I'm responsible for the sinful words I spoke or actions uh, that, that I just launched. Please forgive me, he does. Uh, his promises are sure. But there's a certain aspect where he's like, you know, you need to start living like the person you really are. Stop it. Then Paul says, verse 21, I find it to be a law. It's, it's a principle. It's not a law like Ten Commandment law level. That when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Every person who walks with Christ knows that. I, I suspect all of us could tell stories that, we, you know, even in the middle of time in the word or time in prayer or fellowship with other people, like some of the most vile thoughts or strategies, like, like this evil, just where does that come from? Paul says, I, I have discovered, that's what the word find means, and it's something that Paul has come to know by his experience. There's this principle that evil lies close at hand. I think he captures some of this in Galatians 5.17. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Well, who wants to keep me from doing the things I want to do? Evil, our adversary, the world system that we're a part of. But now let's press on. Look at verse 22. And I think this is where you really do see the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, as Paul will refer to in just a moment, really is begin to not just emerge, but take control. And here's evidence that this is Paul, present day, as an apostle, mature believer in so many ways, yet realistic about his struggle with sin. Look at verse 22. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Do you hear an echo from chapter 617, where we were uh, just in, in recent weeks, where Paul talks about an obedience from the heart? That's evidence of the new birth. That's the kind of obedience that parents want from kids. Not, not just compliance or because you're bigger than me and you'll give me what for if I don't do it, but no, a heart that is, is united to the family heart. And here, that heart has been brought to life through the power of Christ and now delights in the law of God in the inner being. I love this. Because for all the war and internal struggle in my own heart, there are those moments where I can genuinely say with Paul, oh, I delight in this. Oh, Lord, I, I really do want to obey you. I, I, I want to worship you alone. I don't want to run after the idolatry of my heart. And Paul says in another place that covetousness actually is a form of idolatry. Lord, I, I don't want to... I don't want to bow down and worship finances or some kind of security or experience. I want to worship you exclusively. I do want to be a man who tells the truth out of love. And because of this work of God that takes place in the inner person, that's the reason no true believer can ever be fully comfortable in or at peace with sin. You might have a moment, but if you're comfortable in sin for year Month after month, year after year, ooh, you, you really need to examine your relationship with Jesus. 
But here's hope, even for some of you who feel like it's been nothing but sin and failure and wipeout. I don't remember, and some of you are saying, I don't remember the last time that I really had a warm heart for Jesus or that his word spoke to me. Um, I would start at this point, but are you comfortable in your sin? And if you're saying, I hate where I am, good. There's a deliverer on the horizon, and he knows. So the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus begins to emerge, this delight. Where does that come from? It comes from the new birth, and and that brings us ultimately to what many feel is the climactic uh, verse in this section. Let me just back up a little bit. Verse 23, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am. What does it mean to be wretched? It means to be in a condition that is most pitiable. You see people in wretched physical conditions every day on the streets of Salt Lake, imprisoned by their addictions or mental illness, clothing, evidence of wretched living. I don't say that as one who judges. I, you, you'd have to know the whole life story before you could say, well, it's because of this or that or the other. But, but those are walking pictures of, of wretchedness. And Paul just exclaims in this moment, feeling the pressure and, and just the warfare and the tension between the desires to do what is right, and yet he turns around and does what he knows he shouldn't do. And just like you, just like me, oh, wretched man that I am. Is there pity for wretched people like us? And the cry of his heart continues, who will deliver me? Who's gonna reach into this mess and not only draw me out of it because this word, as it's used through the New Testament, uh, frequently d- portrays for us or even seems to indicate drawing out of that, uh, that difficult or detrimental system and drawing to oneself. That's why he says, who will deliver me? Not what will deliver me. Can you prescribe a medication to deliver me? Can you put more money in my bank account to deliver me? Could you change my circumstances and deliver me? No, the real question is, who? Who? And there's only one, isn't there? And he's named in the next verse. Thanks be to God. And you can supply these words from the previous verse. Who delivers me? through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the one who's not afraid to reach into the mess and turmoil and chaos and say, let me lift you out of that and bring you to myself. Jesus, I'm a wreck, I know, and I love to deliver wrecks. But I've sinned in this way so many times, I'll probably sin like this again. I know, that's why I bled on the cross. That's why you need atoning power that has eternal duration. But Jesus, I'm afraid to promise one more time that I won't sin like that because I've broken that promise, I know. But are you gonna suddenly be your own deliverer? You don't have a very good track record of self-delivery. We come up with all kinds of objections and yet he persists and presses into our messy world and says, I'm here, I'm your hope. I am the one who can deliver, and there is no other. Go back to one of the messages we preached in the Christmas series. Do not be afraid. And you remember the passage where the angel comes to Joseph and says, 
do not be afraid. The child that Mary has is of the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to say, and you will name him Jesus. And you remember the meaning? What does the name Jesus mean? He will save us from our sins. And beloved, that's not like just that one-time deal where you kind of like come to Jesus for the first time and you know you kind of get the get out of jail free card, so to speak, and then he kind of turns you loose and you live your life. No, every day Jesus arrives to save you from your sin. Every day he stands before you as the great hero and deliverer and says, my name says it all. And you and I, like Paul, feel the tension and wrestling back and forth with this thing and like, am I schizophrenic? Am I just like a nutcase? God, what is going on? He says, well, remember, this is the law and how it's used. This is sin and how it will, it will try to employ the law as a, as a spiritual base of operation to destroy you. Uh, this is the nature of your flesh and the reality of your life right now. I've delivered you from uh, the, the power of sin, but its presence remains. But take heart, Jesus is still in the middle of all this, saving us from our sins. That's our hope. Have you ever come to him acknowledging that your sin is actually more sinful than you ever wanted to admit? And have you ever thrown up your hands to say, I am a wretched mess, who could deliver me? There's a life-changing answer and experience waiting for you in Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Lord Jesus, your word tells us you only deliver us from the wrath to come. Your word tells us that you have delivered your people from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the beloved Son. Your word tells us that you will deliver your people from every evil deed and bring us safely into your heavenly kingdom. And with Paul, in response to these great promises, we all say to you be glory forever and ever. There are some this morning who struggle mightily, who are tempted to believe that their sin may have actually bested them, their sin may have actually won the day, that there's no more forgiveness found in you, there's no more reconciliation, there's no more mercy or compassion left in you, they've sinned away their last chance. Oh God, would you break through that kind of of distorted, evil thinking and rescue, and according to your promise, the work which your goodness began, complete it by your strong arm. So Father, seal to our hearts every word of grace, every word of truth, every word of life and salvation. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.